and welcome to Voices of Recovery, a podcast about life after addiction from Serenity Lane. Our guest in the studio today is Leah B. Leah is a self-described service junkie who, one day at a time, has put together more than 34 years of continuous sobriety. She shared some of the things she has learned and what's helped her stay sober. She has come so far since entering treatment in 1984, but she still remembers how it all began. My name is Leah, and my sobriety date is March 3rd, 1984. I was an alcoholic from the beginning. I was 16, and looking back, I know the first time I drank, I drank an entire fifth, and it started my, what would become my story. My history is full of what happened that night, and that is I just kept drinking until I blacked out, and I was a compulsive drinker from then on. This would have been in 1968, and I was, I had just gone into high school, and it, it, I became Jekyll and Hyde, which I hear in the rooms often. And so what it was like for me is that I would drink with whomever. I didn't matter what crowd I was with. I would just find the crowd that had the booze. But outside of that, I was a very good student. Uh, I think I averaged 3.5. I was in the student council. I was a jock um, in lettered in four sports and was active in community stuff. And at home, uh, my preference was to not be there, which is one of the reasons I was so active in school. I can look back now that I've worked the program so well and know that I my family did the best they could, but growing up, it was uh, gnarly at best. was a high achiever. She got good grades, lettered in four varsity sports. She was focused and smart and generally succeeded at whatever she applied herself to. In her mind, she didn't fit the profile of someone who had a drinking problem. In all of my drinking career, if we can call it that, I really did not get it that I had a problem whatsoever even though I was around alcoholics. And my acceptance was, is that's just the way my life was, because I went on blissfully believing I didn't have a problem. And I look back now and I call it my sainthood, because when I did uh, have a clue about my drinking, it was simply that I was not a problem drinker because I compared only myself to people who drank more than me, never people who drank less. And there were plenty who were worse than me, therefore I did not have a problem. And I'm fortunate that I drank for maybe 16 years. So I sobered up when I, oh, maybe, how old was I? I was 32. And uh, when I realized I was one, all these people that I knew who were, quote, worse than me, uh, close quote, um, were really, I was on par with them and no different whatsoever. And when I realized that, I absolutely did not want to accept it. But I had been 
around people who worked the program enough that I realized, oh my God, I got to do something about this and I've got to do it now. And so I admitted I had a problem and fortunately knew to submit straight away. And it took a while for me to really accept that I was an alcoholic, though. But early on, I just accepted my life that that's the way it was. That's the way people live their lives. Today, going to treatment for a substance use disorder is a little more socially acceptable. 34 years ago, that was not the case. It was taboo at the time, and I remember thinking, but I got to do something, because I, I get it that this is a disease didn't fully accept it, but I got it that I was in trouble because I had been listening and somehow got through my brain that uh, even though I was what I now call a high-bottom drunk, I was very much a late-stage story that had I continued, I definitely could have died. I don't know how it is I didn't die from alcohol, alcohol poisoning. But so going into Serenity Lane was like the solution, and going in there was such complete safety because outside of there I didn't have a safety zone, and I didn't know how people were going to take it. My family kind of said, oh, here she goes again. She's doing her thing, but they didn't like it. They didn't know how to understand it. They especially didn't like it when I started telling family secrets. My parents wanted to disown me. So being in Serenity Lane was really my um, cradle of, oh, my God, they're going to hold me till I get through this. And so it was um, a becoming experience. I got to start becoming Leah, who I really didn't know. And I know I can look back and say I didn't know Leah very well before that. But what I did discover straight away is that I had this really strong level of courage. I now call it my courage muscle that I was able to exercise right away. And in fact, I did understand that people didn't like talking about it. And I decided it was something I wanted to just treat matter-of-factly. And so I was very open at work about it, very open in my union, very open in my family. And so I've not, I've chosen not to be anonymous pretty much from the start. Even as a high-functioning, so-called high-bottom alcoholic, Leah found that she had a lot of room to learn some new skills in treatment. Because a lot of people thought because I was so-called sophisticated that I had kind of reached this level. And I knew inside that absolutely was not true. I was a scared-to-death human being, but that's not what I showed on the outside. And I certainly didn't know how to get along with others without a drink in my hand. And so I didn't know how to be authentic. And I started learning how to truly belong in a group, get honest. And I mean brutally honest. I learned to take off the masks and quit hiding. Uh, I learned to... uh, Whatever I said I didn't have... I learned the skills of how to do that. And, you know, I'm into it 34 years, and I'm still learning. It's it's a treat. Like, I learned the new language. And this may not be new, but I remember the other day I was talking about a sponsee who years ago taught me how important it was to her to be in the herd. 
Well, I now use that all the time because it does the job of just saying that's how important it is that we belong. And I probably value the most that that's the skill that I learned early on that I had a place to belong because it was a process to really to really get it. But I, that was my first sense of, oh, my God, these are my people. This is my herd. I still remember being surprised. And so that was one of the early skills early on was to allow myself to be surprised because I was so in charge before that, such a control freak, such a perfectionist that uh, no one could surprise me. I could not surprise myself. And that's part of the thrill of sobriety today. I get surprised all the time, and it's a joyful experience, which is another skill that I learned. I could have spontaneous joy. People in recovery will often describe the development of their spirituality as finding a higher power I can do business with. For Leah, it took some time and exploration to develop something that worked for her. But eventually, she found it. My higher power concept has morphed many times. I was, growing up, we went to church a lot. But my family didn't necessarily act in way of the teaching, so I was very confused. But I knew the way my minister talked about it, and I thought, oh, well, that must be what they're talking about. And so when I first went in and I heard that you can make your higher power a doorknob and stuff like that, I said, well, I'm just going to choose what my minister, George, used to teach us. And that's what I clung to. And that worked for me a while. But when I was in the rooms, I realized that it was not me, it, that that's, it wasn't the loving, nurturing God that I needed to have. And so I started to drift away. And it was difficult because back then, um, mostly what we heard were it was a Christian God in the rooms. And I'm going, uh, no, no, it, it, this sounds insistent. And so I resisted it. I remember many years wrestling with it and too, so much that I took a college course on all kinds of religion just to explore it. As time went on, it's changed for me. And there was, technically today, I'm agnostic. But I have a huge spiritual program and I love church functions. I love the closeness that people have. I love the, the way that they are with each other, their color, their, you know, all kinds of things, their music. Uh, so I have a huge appreciation. But my God today, um, and I do call my God God for simplicity reasons. I call it palm. <laughs> you know that drink, palm? It's a pomegranate drink. Because it's a power outside myself. And that's what's the most important to me is that I remember that I don't have, I don't take charge. And so when it's a power outside myself, I remember to think outside of me. And I think about God in terms of the group of drunks that I hang out with. 
Um, and I imagine hearing them talk in meetings and and I remember the good things that otherwise I wouldn't think of. And sometimes I, when I'm looking for guidance on something, I simply do what we do and I turn it over completely and profoundly and then just truly see what happens. And then my intuition teams up with that concept of God and uh, things are relaxed and free for me and I just have this total trust that I can move on with. Another part of recovery Leah delved into early in sobriety was the aforementioned group of drunks. If a flock of geese is a gaggle and a group of crows is a murder, a bunch of drunks is a fellowship. Oh, the fellowship means everything. I uh, was such an outsider, such a loner, and I was so terrified when I first came into treatment. I was terrified uh, for lots of good reasons. I was just terrified to be a human being and always thought that anything I did, anything that happened around me that went wrong must have been my fault because that's kind of the way I was taught at home. And then when I found out that there was a group of people like me, I was a slow acceptance that they really meant me, too, that I was included. But when I caught on, it was like, wow, this is just the coolest thing, because I was traveling. And I, no matter where I went, whether it was in Philadelphia or Phoenix or uh, Toronto, it, it was... The same. This fellowship used the same language. They had the same welcoming nature. And then here at home, when I'm having a down day, even if I just show up and sit on the edge and listen, I know that I belong and the fellowship means everything. Leah began to put together years of sobriety she continued to follow suggestions and listen to what people had to share about their experiences. And she was warned to watch out for rough patches at certain milestones. Everything from the loss of marriages to the loss of loved ones. That really rough patch for me was when I had eight years. And so it was very helpful that I had had someone say, be on the alert because it was timed with the lowest point in my life and it had a lot to do with my knowing that I had to be very attentive, very aware, and do everything I could to get through it. But the next one for me really was 15 years. And I remember thinking, oh, I can start to relax. I think I've got this thing. <laughs> and I remember saying that to a group of friends, and they had a good laugh with me. <laughs> Thank God that we learn how to laugh about that and laugh at ourselves. In the early 90s, I was so I had so much suicidal language in my head, just astonishing. And I thought, how the heck am I going to stay sober through this? Because I didn't want to talk about it. And I was just absolutely going nuts. And I would talk to my sponsor uh, a bit about it. But I never let her know how, just exactly how bad it was. But I got through that, and I got through it because people kept caring about me and loving me, even though they didn't totally know what was going on. I knew to keep, I knew to keep 
suiting up and showing up, as we say. And I got through that somehow. And I got through it because people around me were so supportive, and I would hear other people talk about it. And so I knew there was a lot of empathy around me. But I, gosh, when I think about it, I've gone through the death of two sisters, um, my mom, my dad, my oldest daughter, who died from this disease. And when I look at all that, I am just so incredibly grateful that somehow, somewhere along the line, this stuff really took root in me. And I knew that the worst thing to do was to drink over it. But I certainly was tempted. I mean, to this very day, I think that a cold beer sounds good. And I've been sober a long time. I hear a lot of long-term sobriety people say, I don't have any compulsion anymore. And I'm going, well, good for you. Because <laughs> uh, I sure do. And that's the reason I keep working this program as hard as I can. A hard part of long-term recovery is saying goodbye to loved ones, both those who pass away sober and those who lose their battle with addiction. For Leah, some of those hit close to home. Well, with people who have passed away that I've known in my sobriety, the sweetest moments are when they've worked hard for their sobriety and they die sober. My friend Darlene is the one that I think of the most. She, short, she sobered up shortly after me and fought hard for her sobriety. And when she knew she was uh, facing death because she had cancer, the thing she was the most proud of was that she was still sober. And I've been fortunate to know a number of people who have died sober. I've also known people who died because of the disease or were not in recovery when they passed away. And in the last three years, I've in particularly uh, lost three people who died because of this disease. Uh, my daughter, who was 46, that was extremely painful. Uh, she and I we used to go to meetings together and things like that. and. I had to come to terms with that she was one of those who was literally constitutionally incapable. And that was painful. And yet, at the same time, I knew that I could celebrate my recovery, be grateful, and uh, keep carrying the message from my own experience of what that was like so that other people knew when they're going through it, they weren't alone. And then that same year, I lost a former sponsee to the disease. And hers, they both were, you could call them ugly deaths just because it's painful when the organs are shutting down and all that. And you certainly don't want to lose them. But fortunately, I also didn't let my ego get all hooked up to say I could have done something about it. I knew that wasn't true. I knew that that could have been me if um, I had been constitutionally incapable, and so I remain grateful for that. Uh, so it's nice to have that balance of the sweetness and when people get to die sober and see how much that meant to them and to know how 
much grace we have that that can happen in our lives because we see when it doesn't. Leah offered some advice on how to deal with watching a loved one struggle with this disease, especially for those loved ones who relapse or become trapped in a cycle of relapse. I would hope that what people do is stay grateful for their own program and do an inventory around, is my program tight? And understand that, yes, something happened that caused them to go off the rails, but, you know, it, it could be you, and that's them. And what I hope for is that this person's, the persons in their lives that are doing this, that they'll just hold the space for them. Uh, you're welcome back anytime, and it doesn't matter how many times you go in and out. You can, you can go out and drink every night and come back. We don't, we don't hold that against you whatsoever. I, I don't experience judgment around it when I see people uh, go out and come back in. Now, some people will say, oh, yeah, there they go again. But it's, it's usually of gosh, I wish I could do something for them, but all we can do is hold the space and keep reaching out, being responsible to the degree possible, and saying, welcome back. I know a lot of people who I usually call um, revolving door uh, addicts or revolving door alcoholics, and I'm just really grateful every time they come back because I know the statistics. We're fortunate that they come back because sometimes they don't ever come back. And then we never, ever know what happens to them. And often we wish we, we would. I was thinking the other day about people I sobered up with, and I thought about how many of them. I don't know what happened to them just because so many of them, we didn't live near each other. But I sure would like to know. And I, my prayers are that they found their way to stay on the journey. It's a powerful journey. There is a popular story in the AA Big Book in which the author writes, Acceptance is the answer to all of my problems today. Leah touches upon this when explaining her own work with people who relapse. It's a lot of step one, which stresses admitting powerlessness and what might be described as Surrendering to win. My sponsees bring this up quite a bit. And so I ask them to look at this process of when I first realized I had a problem, the very first thing I did was admit I had a problem. I didn't want to do it. I was shocking. I hated it. Uh, it's the last thing I wanted to do. I thought that I was scum. But I knew I had to do it, just admit it. And I knew immediately that I had to submit myself to a program. And I was fortunate that I was able to go to Serenity Lane and start that to kick it off. But then I knew I had to go more, which is why they said to go to AA meetings. And so I did go to AA meetings. Um, but even I was doing those things, it took several years before I fully accepted that I was an alcoholic. And so when I see people who go in and out, especially people that I sponsor, I'll say, let's talk about this acceptance thing. I don't think we're there yet. You know, you've admitted, you've submitted, 
let's talk about acceptance. There's something going on here. We got to dig a little deeper and get to this acceptance because there's nothing you can do. And we'll reread the doctor's opinion. Uh, we dig at it because if you don't get acceptance, uh, you're going to have a rough road and you can slip so easily. And then I say, and the fourth stage for me was surrender. And when you can reach absolute sweet surrender, that you can, that you've got the tools, you've got the knowledge, you've got the resources. But most of all, you turn it over. You're not in charge anymore. You're not, you're not running the show. And you got to get it. That just because you think you can go do those things doesn't mean it's a good idea. Run it by somebody first. But most of all, if we're bothered by somebody else going out we have to watch our thoughts around that because maybe we'll get the notion of i want to give up too and i say never ever give up if you can at all possibly avoid it leah is a self-described service junkie in aa you'll often hear the phrase service keeps you sober leah is proof that there is some serious truth to that i am a service junkie I love being in service, and after I retired, I was involved in a lot of different um, community things, but in the last several years, I've only focused on AA, and I love it this way, and so it, I thrive on it, and it's rich, and it's meaningful, and it's a joy to watch people go through the highs and the lows, and to help them through the struggle and to watch the path that people are taking. And so when I'm able to be in service, whether it's sponsoring someone and can meet them one-on-one and help them talk through intimate details that are wiggly and tough turns to make or whatever, or whether it's um, chairing a meeting or going out to Serenity Lane or Buckley or the jail, uh, that kind of service It is incredibly meaningful to me because I get to watch so many other people's experience and to say, wow, I've got so much to learn. As an old-timer, I rely on the newcomer. They help me stay sober, and therefore being in service helps me stay sober, and it's what enriches my life so much. And like being involved in um, EVI, I get to help organize activities so that people who would otherwise want to go drinking have something to go do. And that is exciting to say, to be a part of. And we can give you something more interesting to do. And it doesn't have to be intense. It can be fun and delightful. And I like it when people learn that you can come into recovery and actually have a really good time (laughs) and prefer to go do that than go do anything else. And so the nice thing about being in service is I'm usually around a whole bunch of other people who like being in service, too. So it's never a one-way street. I'm always getting as much as I give, if not more. The phrase, to thine own self be true, is engraved on the back of the chips, or coins, people collect for sober time in 12-step programs. And it is this discovery of one's authentic self that so many people in recovery will tell you has been one of the greatest parts of their journey in sobriety. I'm surprised when I think about what I'm proud of that I am tearing up. And (laughs) it's because I'm 
alive and have made it through some really tough things and uh, surprised myself by finding out that I'm really a worthwhile, valuable human being who does meaningful things and makes a difference and has a great sense of humor and that out of that, um, people tell me that it, that affects them, that then they're able to know that they can loosen up and lighten up. And, and I see it in my kids, um, adult kids, my children who have a matter-of-fact way of approaching life and do things without... They, they they just seem to walk through it and they care about other people so much. Yeah, so I'm proud of that. And I'm proud that um, I do enough service work that I would actually be recognized for that. I you know You know, I was recently and it still blows me away. It's like all I have to do is be me. I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how to answer that question, except for the proudest thing that I can say is that I learned to be me. And that, therefore, I get to share that, and I get to watch other people just learn to be them, and that it's good enough. Leah cautions anyone going the distance in recovery, you're going to make mistakes. We all do. She had one piece of advice, though. I would like to comment on esteemable acts, though. Certainly over the years, I've had times where I've had back steps, we'll call them. Uh, I've done something horribly embarrassing or just, God, I don't even want to talk about some of the missteps I took. And the way I've always recovered from that is to do an esteemable act. And to remember that I was in charge of my track record. I was in charge of the lever of if I was doing well or not and which direction I was going to go. And it's esteemable acts that always got me to recover uh, for my own regard and the perception that other people had of, had of me. Because, you know, I try not to worry about what other people think, and I try to say it's none of my business, but I still care. I mean, I've still got a massive ego that I have to watch for every day. And so the best way I have of managing it when I think I've taken a hit, whether I have or not, it's me that thinks I have, I get back into it by doing an esteemable act. That's exactly the solution that gets me back on course. Finally, Leah shared how a fundamental rule of volleyball, which she played competitively in high school and college, also applies to the crucial daily task of maintaining a healthy and solid sobriety. We get a daily reprieve dependent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And um, it takes me back, oddly enough, to having played volleyball all those years. And the key skill oddly enough, is to keep your knees bent. Because if you don't, you're not ready to go wherever you need to. But if you keep your knees bent, 
you're ready in a place to use whatever tools, skills, moments you have. And that's what the daily reprieve comment reminds me of. The maintenance of my spiritual condition is to keep my knees bent, that I'm ready, which means I'm, I know what my tools are, I know what my resources are. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Voices of Recovery. This week's episode was recorded and edited by Thaddeus Moore at Sprout City Studios. Our theme music is composed and performed by Sammy Gallo, written and narrated by me, Monique Danziger. A very big thank you to our alumni guest this week, Leah B. And if you like this episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. If you'd like to learn more about our alumni program or be a guest on the podcast, go to serenitylane.org forward slash alumni. See you next time.